Last night we were looking at the middle way, um, the opening section of Dhammachaka Pavantana Sutta, the setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. And we did the backstory, how Siddhartha became the Buddha and how he decided that he had to teach. Went looking for his five former companions, tracked them down, and first of all, um, used the teaching of the middle way as a strategy to break open their resistance to hearing the Dharma, uh, essentially break open their resistance to hearing something new. They assumed they already knew, but they were wrong. So he had to um, get work his way through this resistance first before he could then give them the basic um, teaching. So he does that, and then what he teaches them are the four truths. These are the Chattaro Arya Satchani, usually uh, translated as the noble truths. This is Arya, but recent scholarship has cast doubt on that translation. And so now you get um, different variations that pop up. Um, the four ennobling truths the truths that have the function of making one an Arya or uh, what I prefer is the four or, or the truths of the Arya an Arya is a, a, a um, mature student someone who has had at least one glimpse of the unconstructed so you could say the bottom of the bucket has fallen out at least once. Such a person is Arya, cultivated, refined, noble, and so on. So it's, the word is actually cognate without aristocrat, aristocracy. So they form a kind of spiritual elite. Uh, they, in, in one sense you could say these are the Buddha's people. Uh, these are the ones who actually have some understanding of what he's on about uh, regardless of what nationality what gender, what language what ethnicity uh, all of that is irrelevant so the four the, the truths are what is true to such a person um, what is true to most people is something quite different but what is true to the um, um, the uh, mature practitioner is this this is the, the, the basic the, the framework uh, so the four truths of the noble one uh, could be one translation and when the Buddha is speaking of course there's only one noble person one Arya and that's him mm -hmm. so his four truths and um, the oh, let's, I'll go through them. Let's go through them first. This is the noble one's truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In brief, the five bundles associated with clinging are dukkha. 
This is the noble one's truth of the arising of dukkha. It is craving, which leads to further becoming, is bound up with obsession and delight, and finds its delight now here, now there. Specifically, craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. This is the noble one's truth of the cessation of dukkha. It is the complete cessation of that very craving, abandoning it, renouncing it, releasing it, letting it go. This is the Noble One's truth of the way leading to the cessation of dukkha, the Noble Eightfold Path of right view, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right energy, right mindfulness and right concentration. So these are the four truths. Um, They are the truths of the awakened ones, the Noble Ones. In other words, they show us the world from the perspective of someone who has awakened or is on the path to awakening. (coughs) And they provide the basic framework of the Buddha's teaching. So they're more than a list. Um, it's It's a kind of a template, a structure that's being provided here. And the whole thing revolves around this concept of dukkha. So we have to have a look at it. Um, this is a key technical term. Um, previously, it was used to be always translated as suffering. Then there's been some dissatisfaction with that translation, so people have tried other ones. Uh, unsatisfactoriness. Um, Hmm? Wimpy. Yeah. Ah, well, what about Tinisaro's stress? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that works at all. But um, the problem is that, as with a lot of these technical terms, there is no English equivalent. So there's no every translation is wrong. So I think it's just better to say dukkha mm-hmm. and get over it. Uh, it's a compound word. It comes from the word ka, which means space, empty space, and the prefix du, which conveys a sense of bad, unpleasant, painful, undesirable, imperfect, don't want it, get rid of it, etc., etc., etc. So dukkha is a painful space, um, and it can be taken... It refers to the painful emptiness that we feel at the centre of our being. This sense that we have that there's something missing. Um, I've I've got to do something because there's something missing with the way things are, the way, who, with who I am, with what my situation is. It's okay, but it could be better, and I need to make it better. <clears throat> so this painful emptiness that we feel at the centre of our being. Um, ka also refers to the space at the centre of a wheel. And of course often you have the, the wheel as the... Well, it's the basic symbol of Buddhism. And there's always at the centre an empty space. That's ka. Um, and so the image here is if you have a, vehicle, a wheeled vehicle, the axle goes through the empty space at the centre of the, the wheel but it doesn't fit properly. So there's a, the vehicle, if it moves at all, 
we was only slowly, grindingly, with an incredible amount of resistance. Grind, grind, grind. Has your practice ever felt like that? Has your life ever felt like that? This is Dukkha. Um, it extends, its meaning extends from the most gross forms of suffering and misery all the way through to the most subtle forms of discontent. It covers all, all that entire range. Um, sometimes I um, um, try, try a little Dukkha thought experiment. Uh, if you think about it, if you think about your situation sitting here right now, is there anything about this situation that you would change if you could? And if the answer is yes, then you have Dukkha. Uh, you don't necessarily have suffering, but you certainly have Dukkha. So Dukkha can be, can be quite subtle or it can be extremely gross. It's the whole, the whole range. So it begins with Dukkha. Um, and when and the Buddha analyzes Dukkha into, th- into three levels. Well, first of all, why does the Buddha begin with Dukkha? Because he's talking to practitioners about their practice. Remember the context. He's got five companions. They're extremely dedicated practitioners. And he's, um, the problem that they have, from the Buddha's perspective, is that they've got the wrong practice, heading in the wrong direction, leading to the wrong result. Um, so why begin with dukkha because any kind of practice begins with dukkha why are we sitting in this hall because A we have dukkha B we know we have dukkha and we need to do something about it that's why we're here if we really didn't have dukkha we would not be here we would be at home or in the pub or at a party or doing something sensible reading a book maybe but we're here because we have to, we've been moved to do something so this takes us to the whole realm of affect the feeling uh, we are there's some kind of pain and we are moved to do something about it and this is the, the, the foundation of any practice any meditation practice and the, the Buddha is addressing practitioners about their practice so this is the beginning of it um, and also you notice that in, the, in this, this framework of the four truths there is no mention of avidya ignorance or delusion now if you're familiar with Mahayana Buddhism this would quite possibly come as a surprise my main exposure to Mahayana is through Zen and in Zen they're always banging on about ignorance or delusion avidya, and that this is the fundamental problem we don't see what's going on so what we have to do is to 
see properly what's going on. This is the fundamental problem. And enlightenment is the overcoming of delusion. But here there's not one a single mention of delusion. What the Buddha talks about is tanha. Um, he classically translated as craving. Literally it means thirst. And um, delusion is a cognitive term. You know, it's about the head, it's about what we understand. Tanha is an affective term. It's about the heart. It's about drivenness. It's about what we love and what we hate. Both of them are covered by, by tanha, by craving. Um, and again, this practice is about action. It's about what one does. And the source of action is the heart, driven to do something. So again, tanha. So um, you can see that the four truths provide this, you could say, universal framework, but it's specifically directed at these five people, at their particular context. Um, the Buddha then analyzes dukkha into three levels. He says, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are dukkha. And this is the normal everyday physical and emotional pain. This is the, the pain, the dukkha, the pain that arises through normal suffering. Uh, the tradition calls it dukkha dukkha. Um, and then you get association with the unloved is dukkha, separation from the loved is dukkha, not getting one what one wants is dukkha. Uh, so this is a deeper level. Um, it's, the tradition calls it viparinama dukkha, the dukkha inherent in change. And this is the pain um, in a life that is fundamentally out of control. This takes us right to impermanence, which is a major theme for the Buddha. Things change. Now that's not necessarily a problem, but the problem is that things change regardless of what we want them to be. Um, I want things to change, for example. I want to get thinner rather than fatter. But it doesn't seem to be happening that way. I seem to be getting fatter rather than thinner. The situation seems to be out of my control. I suppose I could do. I could be relentless about it, but I'm, that's another thing about change. I would like to be much more disciplined. I would like to change in that way. But I don't seem to be changing in that way. <laughs> If anything, I'm getting lazier as I get older. So it's not simply that things are changing, but things are changing in a way that I do not control. And so change takes me to places that I don't want to go. They take me to places where I'm separated from what I love and associated with what I don't love, or in fact dislike. Um, and there's not much I can do about it. Uh, 
And of course, not getting what one wants is dukkha. Has anybody actually had that experience? <laughs> so it's it's like he's he's going he's going deeper with this. Uh, the gap. One way of of, of looking at um, the nature of dukkha is is to say it's the gap between what is happening and what we want to be happening. Mm. And often when we look, there is that gap. Uh, And it can get very subtle. One of the things about dukkha that people don't necessarily get... Oh, we'll we'll, we'll talk about it now. Um, It can sound very gross. And it can sound very pessimistic. So if you're an orthodox terrible Vardhan, the way you show your orthodoxy is by saying, when any, anybody says anything about anything, you shake your head and you say, oh, it's Dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> Had a great holiday. Oh, that's Dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, it was fantastic. Dukkha. <laughs> so, you know, you, you demonstrate in this way that you are truly absorbed the Buddha's teaching. Um, but dukkha is actually um, a refined taste that takes time to actually develop. Uh, the ability to perceive the dukkha in a situation requires a, a, a high degree of refinement in the senses and in the chitta. Um, you know the, the, story, the, the old fairy story about the princess and the pig? Mm-hmm. So, princess, I don't know, visits some castle, and the king is a bit suspicious about her identity. Is she really a princess? Is she just pretending to be a princess? So she sent off to the to the guest um, bedroom. It's this magnificently comfortable bed, but the king has a single pea inserted under the mattress. And the next morning, he says to the princess, "So, my dear, how did you sleep?" And she says, "It was terrible." That mattress was just awful. I couldn't get to sleep at all. You're a princess. (laughs) Because of the delicacy and the refinement that she shows in her appreciation of dukkha. If she had said, that was fantastic, that was the best bed I've ever slept in, out, you're obviously a fake. Uh, uh, Dukkha is like that. It's what... This is, and this is part of the noble, the way that the Arya sees things. What for the ordinary person is pleasurable, for the Arya may well be painful. Uh, and you can see it in, I mean, it's a, a question of maturity. So it's, it's possible that at the age of 20, your favourite music is rock and roll played to the nth level of volume. And it's possible, but by the age of 60, you're listening to Mozart. Quietly. Now, one way of looking at that progression is there's a refinement going on, a refinement of taste, a refinement of appreciation of the dukkha entering the ear. And as that develops, so one's tastes become more refined. And this is um, part of the whole progression of practice so a dukkha is not necessarily gross and to really to get a sense of it we have to be really sharp and very sensitive um, to find it apart from the obvious stuff of course uh, 
Um, the deepest layer of dukkha is sankara dukkha, constructed dukkha, or the dukkha of constructions, where the Buddha says, in brief, the five bundles associated with clinging are dukkha. Now, the five bundles or the five aggregates, we'll look at those tomorrow night, but this is one of the basic ways in which the Buddha divides up the human being um, and their body, feeling, perception, constructions and awareness. Have I got that right? Mm-hmm. Four. Five. Five. Body, feeling, perceptions, constructions and awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, four, feeling, perception, um, four, feeling, perception. Constructions, constructions formations and, and awareness or consciousness yeah but we'll talk about those tomorrow but essentially it means human experience um, or the experiencing human being looked at from a certain angle and the Buddha says in brief the five bundles associated with clinging are dukkha um, now this is constructed dukkha this is um, all the ways in which we construct our dukkha. Uh, now this can be quite gross. So for example, if you go out for a good time and late next morning wake up in the gutter with vomit stains around your mouth, <laughs> you are experiencing constructive dukkha. That's just gross. It is gross, but the point is it's constructed. (laughs) Or, let's say you're meditating and you've developed a goodly amount of concentration, mindfulness, etc. And you decide, okay, pretty much halfway through the retreat, I've got to go for it. And you sit there for an unusually long period of time and by the time you finish, you're feeling... There's a quality of strain, of tension in the body, strain in the mind, and you're not quite satisfied with the result that you got. You've got dukkha, and it's being constructed. So that's more um, subtle. Um, more deeply is the recognition that all our efforts to escape from dukkha are, in fact, dukkha. I recognise that there's a problem. I'm doing something about it. And this very doing is painful. Because I'm manipulating my experience to make it suit me. And it never works. Whatever I do to make things better, it just becomes part of the problem. And there is nothing I can do to make it better. This is one of the understandings of dukkha that develops in the course of the meditation practice. This recognition that everything that I do to avoid, escape or overcome my problem is just part of the problem. Patrick, when we put the chanting about um, dukkha, um, it, it says uh, clinging to the kanda as the no, I always thought that was that was the the third level 
That is, that's what I just said. In brief, the five aggregate, the five bundles associated with clinging are dukkha. Yeah. In Pali, this is the upadana. Oh, upadana um, upadana kanda. And it's a compound. Yeah. So you've got upadana and you've got kanda. Panch upadana kanda. So would you say that that's clinging to the self? Clinging to these aggregates as the self? So, would you say it's a, clinging to constructions? Um, well, clinging to anything. Um, so these are the the uh, the upadana kundas, the clinging bundles, and you can translate that in various ways. The bundles that cling would be a valid translation, right. or the bundles that are clung to would be a valid translation or the bundles that are associated with clinging would be a valid translation because it's a compound so you can have any relationship between the two parts of the compound so you get different translations I'm just thinking that when you say uh, Sankara as a, uh, as a kanda you're also talking about Sankara as construction is that not? Yeah. Uh, in the five kandas Sankara is specifically the construction of Volition, mm. all the choices that we make. So there, it has a, a narrow application. Uh, sankara, more broadly, which we've talked about before, it means anything constructed, anything put together, and anything that in turn puts something together that constructs something. And that means everything except nibbana. Mm. But in the context of the five aggregates or the five bundles. Specifically, it means the choices that we make. What we do in order to construct our lives. So it's got a narrower meaning there. Because I remember when I uh, used to listen to the Thai teachers, they would talk about sankara as if it was thinking. Like, yeah, that's often where it comes out. Actually, Upandita's um, uh, explanation of it was quite brief. He was asked, what, what does sankara mean? And he said, when the mind does this, yeah. and he just clenched his fist. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, but here, the, this is the deepest level of, of dukkha. And you notice that the Buddha does not say the five aggregates are dukkha, or the five bundles are dukkha. Yeah. Yeah. If he said that, that means there's no way, there's no way out. But he says the five bundles or the five aggregates associated with clinging are dukkha. Which means he's saying that dukkha is an optional added extra. So the deeper we go into our practice, the more refined we discover dukkha. And there are times when its universality becomes apparent. And yet it's an optional added extra. We actually don't need it. Um, otherwise, there'd be no solution to the problem. So that's dukkha. Then uh, we get the arising of dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. Um, this is um, the noble one's truth of the arising of dukkha. It is craving, which leads to further becoming, is bound up with obsession and delight. 
and finds its delight now here, now there, specifically craving for sense pleasures, existence and non-existence. So, it's all about um, craving tanha, literally thirst. Now this is, we've talked about dukkha is this sense of a, an empty space. There's a painful emptiness at our core and we're constantly trying to fill it in. So there's this drive that comes out, this incredible energy that comes banging out of this empty space in order to grab something to bring to bring in, to fill it up. And this is tanha, this is thirst. And this is the drivenness we find uh, within us. The, 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 the sense of urgent necessity. I've got to do this. And again, this, it ranges from the gross to the subtle. So the most obsessive addiction is craving. Um, if you're, have you ever had the experience of meditating and things are going okay, except the mind won't completely shut up? Has that ever happened? And it's like you've just got to chase this thought. Oh, okay, no, I won't. But you've got to chase this one. No, 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 no. But you've got to chase this one. No, no. But you've got to chase this one. That sense of urgent necessity is katanha, is craving. So it can be very subtle or it can be incredibly gross and everything in between. But the sense of drivenness that we feel, that pushes us forward. And this, um, so it's a form of desire. Often people get this mixed up with desire. They think that, you know, the Buddha doesn't like desire. So you mustn't desire things. It's very naughty. If you want something, you'll be punished. Uh, but um, tanha is a particular kind of desire that the Buddha very carefully defines. Don't get it mixed up with uh, all forms of desire. Without desire, we wouldn't be here. Without desire, we would not be doing this meditation practice. Uh, desire is fundamental, necessary. Um, but dukkha is a kind of drivenness, driven desire and aversion. Uh, the shadow of wanting is not wanting. Uh, this drivenness works both ways. It's like, if I want the sunny side of the street, I don't want the shady side. If I want the shady side, I don't want the sunny side. If there's want, if there's movement toward, there's movement away. If there's desire, there's aversion. We saw it in Satipatthana Sutta, longing and sorrow for the world. If there's longing, there's sorrow. If there's sorrow, there's longing. Each is the shadow of the other. So it's not simply desire. It's the whole sense of drivenness, either towards or away from. But a drivenness that has these particular characteristics, it leads to further becoming. We become someone. We want to become someone. We want to become real to ourselves and to others. It's one of the attractions of thinking. I think myself into existence. I am who I think I am. I am who I think about. So I think about a world and if that world is real, it means I am real. Because it's my world. Uh, and we want to become someone, someone real to others. I want to be recognised as someone, a specific someone. 
Uh, I don't want to be recognised, for example, as a complete idiot. I'd much rather be recognised as a man of wisdom and distinction. You do that, don't you? Well, we won't go there. <laughs> um, this is leads to further becoming. It's, it's, we're always seeking to be someone. Uh, bound up with passion or obsession and delight. Um, uh, raga translates here as obsession. Usually it translates as passion. That's the standard translation, but I think that's wrong. Raga literally means colour. And it's the colouring of the heart when it's caught up in some kind of obsession. Uh, so in English we have the expression, if someone's really angry, we say, he saw red. In other words, the, the chitta, the heart, was coloured red and there was nothing else there. So it has to do with um, drivenness. Um, obsession, the inability to see beyond something and therefore to let it go. I've got to get this. Or I've got to avoid this. I don't care what happens next. I just must have this. This is obsession. And delight, nandi, is the gratification that comes from satisfying a desire. It's the payoff. So I want something, I get it, and there's a payoff. If there wasn't a payoff, I wouldn't bother. So nandi is the gratification that we get. Um, but it has a quality of agitation to it. And it um, sets up another round of desire. That was good, I've got to do it again. Well, that's good, one more time. That's good, and again, 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 and again, and again, and again. So we find ourselves pursuing the same patterns of obsession, of desire, or aversion, as the case may be. It works equally well. And there's a repetitive quality to it. And so it becomes tedious. But still we've got to keep going with it, because this is where my satisfaction comes from. Um, we can see this broadly in consumerism and the whole economic neoliberal project. The, um, on the broad scale of things um, the fact that as a society we never have enough so the, the little thought experiment that I like to provide is imagine <coughs> Prime Minister, <coughs> Treasurer, Governor of the Reserve Bank they have a press conference they announce to the nation we've been studying the national accounts productivity national wealth have all increased greatly over the past 50 years we've reached the point now that we've got enough <laughs> we can all stop now just chill, let's take a break we've got enough I mean, it's inconceivable isn't it? because it's impossible to have enough it's just not, it's just incoherent enough? what? it just it makes no sense if you, if you spoke like that in serious company, you know, not, not like Dharma hippies, but serious people, they think you're a complete lunatic. How, how can we have enough? We've got to grow the economy. We've just got to. It, true, we're destroying the environment, but, you know, we've got to grow the economy. If the climate's getting a bit... But we've got to grow the economy. We've just got to. Because it's impossible to have enough. And this is tanha. Um, and you can see it 
more subtly when we're in the grip of some thought and we can't let it go. I'm thinking something, it causes me pain, I can see that it causes me pain, I can feel it causing me pain, but I've got to finish it off. I've got to keep thinking it. So I'm sure you've had the experience of meditating, a thought arises, you notice that the thought has arisen, you know that you should drop it and head back to the meditation object, but you just in, but you decide, I'll just finish this one off, and then I'll go back. And this, I'll just finish this one off. This is obsession and delight, driving this. So, um, and the Buddha says, finding delight now here, now there, this is the restlessness implied in the endless search for a satisfaction that never quite arrives um, looking for a completion that never quite arrives and he says specifically craving for sense pleasures existence and non-existence and you notice the second two two out of the three are all about identity uh, the Buddha is very interested in how we construct an identity and what we do to sustain it anyway that's briefly the arising of Dukkha then we have the cessation of Dukkha. This is the Noble One's truth of the cessation of Dukkha. It is the complete cessation of that very craving, abandoning it, renouncing it, releasing it, letting it go. Um, so here, um, well, the Buddha, in another discourse, he compares the cessation of Dukkha to the ending of hunger. Uh, so we, we've all experienced hunger. And when we're hungry, we have this growing drivenness, I've got to eat. And so we eat, and there's a great satisfaction when we eat, especially if it's a lunch like today's. And there's a pleasure, there's a gratification that comes out of that. And several hours later, we're wondering, what's for dinner? So we go through the whole cycle again. And then we go through it again and 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 again. And it, we never quite get, we never get to the end of it. Um, but what would it be like if hunger itself ceased? Then there'd be no pleasure that comes from eating, but there'd be no distress that comes from not eating. And the Buddha would say that assuming this was physiologically possible, which of course it isn't, it's just an image. He's suggesting that that the pleasure that would come out of the cessation of hunger would be actually greater than any satisfaction we can find from eating. You could look at it from, let's say I, I'm a smoker, habitual smoker, and I have a desire for another cigarette. So I reach out and smoke it. And there's a gratification, a satisfaction that comes with that because otherwise I wouldn't bother. But that sets me up for the desire for the next one, and the next one, and the next one, next one, etc. Let's say, in contrast, my desire is to give up smoking. If I satisfy that desire, then the satisfaction is, is very different. It's not driven, it's not restless. It's quite peaceful and still. It's more subtle, but more profound, and ultimately more satisfying than the first one. So, um, 
in a mundane sense, uh, what we're talking about is what we've talked about before, contentment. Um, being so absorbed in the present experience that we're not restlessly reaching out for something else to add to it or to justify it. So this has to do with a, um, the relationship to experience which is not driven and therefore is pleasurable. We talked the other night about kaya gata sati, mindfulness immersed in body, being all about finding pleasure in the physical and the kinds of pleasure that we were talking about and the kind of pleasure that um, Siddhartha was talking about when he gave up his ascetic practices. This is the kind of pleasure that's being referred to here. <coughs> now, if you look at the... Just to backtrack, we've got um, a list of four truths. The first one, Dukkha. The second and third, arising and ceasing of Dukkha. Now you notice with the second and third, there's a dynamism in it. Things arise and cease. And they don't arise and cease at random. So the arising of Dukkha. If there's Dukkha, there must be something feeding it. So what's feeding it? Well, what's feeding it is craving. So if you get craving, you get Dukkha. If I want to get rid of the Dukkha, what to do? I could hit the Dukkha on the head with a hammer, or I could work out, well, what's feeding it? And let go of that. So when there's craving, there's Dukkha. When craving is dropped, Dukkha is dropped. So you notice with these two um, truths, what we it expands out from one thing, Dukkha, into two, and we've got a dynamic relationship. And this relationship is all about cause and effect. In other words, it's about dependent arising. Paticca samupada. This is the basic framework of the Buddha's teaching. But it's applying dependent arising to a specific problem, dukkha. So it's presenting the five companions with a very specific cause and effect relationship. And he's telling them, look for the drivenness. And remember we talked yesterday about what why do people take up an intense ascetic practice? And you know, these guys are completely full-on macho ascetics. There's a drivenness in this. That's why they're doing it. And so the Buddha is saying, look for the drivenness. Check that out. And is it really satisfactory? And if it's not, why don't you just let it go? So he's presenting them with a universal principle which is dependent arising and he talks about dependent arising endlessly throughout his career in all sorts of different ways but he's presenting them presenting it to them in a very specific example of it in a particular relationship that is of relevance to them as they're sitting in front of him so he's making something universal applicable to this situation right now <coughs> And that's very much his genius as a teacher, that he had the capacity to do that. Which, and it's quite something. Um, when I started teaching retreats here, actually, um, I was doing 
a PhD in Buddhist studies at um, University of Queensland and eventually I dropped out in order to become the resident teacher here but what I was doing was studying dependent arising and you know esoteric Buddhist philosophy and I'd be doing that for months at a time then I'd come down here and teach a retreat and I had to say something that was actually relevant to the meditators sitting in front of me and it wasn't easy I mean some people think my Dharma talks are abstract dry and academic could you believe that? <laughs> and if you think they're abstract, dry and academic now <laughs> you should have been back here 15 years ago they were intensely academic but you know, that's the way I thought, that's what I was studying and I knew this is something I need to communicate because this is what the Buddha was on about but how do you communicate something like that so big so it actually is relevant to some someone's experience when they're right in front of you. If you ever become Dharma teachers, you'll discover it's not easy. So well, my heart goes out to poor old Buddha <laughs> when he's faced with these ascetics and he's got to give them the whole lot in one hit. It's not so easy. But he, he was a genius at that. Um, and this is one example of when he succeeded in doing it. So you've got one thing opens up into dynamic relationship. When we are practicing meditation, what is it we're playing around with? We're playing with dynamic relationship. What is it when we, we're working with something, a distraction, say? What is it we're saying again and again and again? What's feeding this? Something must be happening to make this happen. What is it? So we talked about structuring attention. I can focusing, focus in on one thing. But don't wear blinkers, so you can't see what's around it. You can't see it in its context. Open up, and then you can see, well, when this moves, that moved as well. That's interesting. Is there a connection? And so it's this open investigation into the shifting patterns of experience. And the basic principle is, what's feeding this? And what does this feed? And the Buddha is presenting this in the four, in, as a kind of a template in the Four Truths. And the uh, fourth truth is the path. And this is remember, this is the second time he's mentioned the path. The path is also the middle way. And it's also it's the fourth truth. Uh, this is the Noble One's truth of the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. The Noble Eightfold Path of right view, right aspiration, right speech, right action... Right livelihood, right energy, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Um, we talked about the complexity of the path yesterday. The fact that it's a dynamic system. Again, you get these dependent arising, with these dynamic interrelationships. Here, let's have a look at some other aspects of path. For a start, the fact that a path always has a direction. A path is going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. So I want the path that goes there in order to get to where I want. In other words, I have a goal. And I need the path that takes me to my goal. So I want to be enlightened or I don't 
I want to be grossly suffering, and I want to be subtly suffering. I want a bit of this subtle spiritual suffering that you're banging on about. So I have some kind of goal. And I want, I'm, want the path that goes to that. And we've talked a lot about the nature of right effort. And one of the problems with effort is that if we're, if I'm pushing what is my present experience aside in order to get to some imagined goal in the future, I'm not fully engaged with the present experience. And it's a barrier. It gets in my way. I overlook things that I shouldn't overlook. I strain, which, and, which just slows me up. Um, so how do goals fit into this um, way of looking at things um, the Buddha doesn't talk oh, he does talk about goals setting up goals but he's, much, he's more interested in directions it's all about setting a direction if, uh, if I know that my goal is in this direction if I've got the direction right I can forget about the destination. I can forget about the goal. Because I know I'm going to get there. And instead, all I have to do is be fully committed to this step right now. And this is um, part of the, um, the, the image of, of the path, of being firmly grounded on just this step. This is the only step that counts. And if I'm satisfied about the direction, I don't need to worry about the goal. That will just happen. It may take a while. It may take longer than I want. But it will happen. I've just got to be completely engaged with this step right now. Also, another aspect of path is that it implies that someone else has been here before and we've talked about this in this path that we're on people have been on this path for over 2,000 years and we're just the latest bunch of travellers and there'll be other people after that, after us so we're part of something much bigger than what we might normally think of and the Buddha in also points out that the path is a lot more than just meditation. In the we, we spoke about the path has three groups. There's um, view, which is wisdom, sila, ethics, and then you have meditation. Uh, in one discourse, um, a non-Buddhist asks the Buddha what he taught, and the Buddha said, "I teach two things." I teach ethics and wisdom. Which is very interesting because he made no mention of meditation. And it's very odd from a Western perspective because what draws us into Buddhism is it's all about the meditation. Then we discover the other things later. But when the Buddha was presenting his teaching to a non-Buddhist, he didn't even mention meditation. He said, I teach two things, ethics and wisdom. And he compared them to two hands washing each other. I can't wash just one hand. I need two hands. And then I can clean my hands. 
ethics is like one hand and wisdom is the other and they wash each other they support each other uh, and I think what he was getting at was that if we're looking for meditation it's here it's in this action it's the interface between ethics and wisdom um, in particular um, whatever we cultivate in meditation has to be expressed in action in other words the test for our practice is the way that we live which is the whole realm of, of ethics anyway that's the f- a quick tour of the four truths and the Buddha goes on a bit f- further talking about the each of the activities or the duties associated with this, each of the truths so the first truth dukkha is to be fully understood and it's interesting that he doesn't say it is to be gotten rid of he says it's to be understood in other words we study our dukkha the second truth the arising of dukkha is to be abandoned so the letting go of craving uh, the third truth the cessation of dukkha is to be realised and this is the awakening itself and the fourth truth the path is to be cultivated developed um, then we come to the end of the discourse this is what the blessed one said and the group of five bhikkhus rejoiced in his words and as this teaching was being given the perfect and stainless vision of dharma arose in venerable kandanya whatever is of the nature to arise all that is of the nature to cease now this little verse is the standard verse which indicates the perfect and stainless vision of dharma in other words attaining the first stage of awakening the first glimpse of the unconstructed the first falling into the black hole and never being seen again Um, and this happens to Kondanya and the way he expresses it is whatever is of the nature to arise all that is of the nature to cease and again this is a model of dependent arising he saw into dependent arising so whatever is of the nature to arise what would that be? Hmm? Hmm. basically everything except Nibbana except the unconstructed so whatever begins ends everything that arises ceases and the emphasis is on the everything and what we do is we kind of set aside something out of that that doesn't cease let's call it for example me this is the sense of the self it's all happening to me I'm the audience of this drama without me there's no drama Um, but the Buddha says all this is of the nature to cease or as John um, Hale once was heard to remark Nibbana is the ultimate paint stripper it strips away everything Um, so Kondanya was the first to get it now do we have time for his story Um, Kondanya uh, was a Brahmin who was very brilliant as a boy and he was particularly specialised in the art of reading 
features, reading the body, I forget the, the term for it, physiognomy or something. Um, and he made a living, um, along with others, as a kind of um, soothsayer, examining newborn children to tell their doting parents, on the basis of his examination, what would happen to them. So astrology and the reading of features, these kinds of arts were highly developed in India, greatly respected. Now these were, people who did this were highly respected and paid professionals. When Siddhartha was born, his father brought in the local experts. Because his father was a wealthy and powerful man, he could afford five of these experts. So he brings them in to examine the boy and to explain what the boy's fate would be. And Kondanya was the youngest of the five, therefore the most junior in the hierarchy. Anyway, they examine the boy, look at his horoscope, do their calculations, get together in a huddle. And the four senior ones said, there's no question, uh, this kid is going to be a universal monarch, an extremely successful political leader. And they were happy with that because they doubtlessly get a big tip from his old man for telling them that. But they couldn't come to consensus because Kundanya said, no, 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 no. He may do that. Or if he leaves home, he will become a Sama Sambuddha, a supremely self-awakened one. And the other four said, you don't want to tell the old man that. Believe me, he doesn't want to hear that. And Kondanya sticks to his guns, and then they explain, look, we're senior to you, we've done been doing this longer, all of us agree, it's not going to happen, so just keep your mouth shut. And Kondanya says, I shall submit a minority report. <laughs> so he did. And the other four were correct, the old man didn't like it at all, and so they walked away with less cash than they would have. Except that Condone didn't walk away. He wanted to stick around this kid because he knew this kid's very special. And if he go, if he does something really special, I want to be there when it happens. So he sticks around. He lives in the neighbourhood, and he waits. And Sid Siddhartha grows up, and you know he's having a good time and being educated and doing all the things that young men do. And Condone's life is dribbling away, waiting. He must have got anxious every now and again, but he recalls his faith and he stays. Anyway, one, one morning he's in the market buying his chai or whatever he buys in the market and the market is abuzz with gossip and he hears the word Siddhartha mentioned. So he goes up and he says, what's going on? What happened? And they say, didn't you hear? No, no, I didn't hear. What happened? Wow, you must be the only person who doesn't, hasn't heard Stop driving me crazy and just tell me what happened. He's gone. Who's gone? Sid's gone. <laughs> what do you mean he's gone? He's just gone. He just disappeared last night. Nobody can find him. And so Kandanya is just absolutely horrified. He's been waiting for decades. It's like watching cricket. As soon as something happens, <laughs> you've missed it because you've fallen asleep ten minutes ago. So he's, he goes racing off in pursuit, but nobody knows exactly where he went because he slipped out at night. But Kondani is no fool and he heads southeast along the same main road that Siddhartha is travelling. 
And eventually he catches up with him, but nobody really knows when, how many years it took before he found him. But uh, he ends up as one of the five companions. So he's one of these ascetics. And this time he's absolutely determined he's not going to let this guy out of his sight because he knows his propensity for disappearing. So he's practicing asceticism, which is really, really not a good thing to do. Like, it's very painful. So he's having a very difficult time. And he's not a young man anymore. But he's got to wait. He's got to wait till something happens. And finally, something happened. Sid has lunch. <laughs> well, he drops the whole thing. He decides, OK, it's not working. I'm out of here. Um, I'm heading to the village down the road because I, I hear they serve a really nice chapati. And all of the five are just completely devastated by this betrayal of everything he stands for. And Kundanya among them, and they just they walk off, they leave him. Now, if you put yourself in Kundanya's shoes, how would you have felt? You have invested virtually your entire life on hope and faith in one person. And eventually, after decades, he completely disappoints you. He disillusions you so much that not only are you not looking for him, you're making sure you're walking in a way in the opposite direction. So Kandanya must have gone through hell. Anyway, sometime later, we don't know how long, um, Siddhartha returns, except he's not Siddhartha, he's the Buddha, gives the first teaching, and Kandanya gets it. Oh, that's what he's talking about. And he's the, the first to attain a glimpse of awakening. So, if you ever feel discouraged in your practice, if you ever think it's taking too long and progress is too slow, just think of Kundanya. <laughs> he's the patron saint of slow students. When the wheel of Dharma had been set in motion by the Blessed One, the earth-dwelling devas cried out, At Badanasi, in the deer park at Isipatana, this unsurpassed wheel of Dharma has been set in motion by the Blessed One. It cannot be stopped by any Samana or Brahmana or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. Hearing the cry of the earth-dwelling devas, the devas of the realm of the four great kings cried out, the Tavatimsa devas, the Yama devas, the Tusita devas, the Nimmaravati devas, the Paranimita Vasavati devas, the devas of Brahma's assembly cried out, at Baranasi, in the deep park at Isipatana, this unsurpassed wheel of Dharma has been set in motion by the Blessed One. It cannot be stopped by any Samana or Brahmana or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. And so at that moment, at that instant, the cry spread as far as the Brahma world and this 10,000 world system shook, quaked and trembled and an immeasurable glorious radiance appeared in the world surpassing the divine majesty of the devas. I think this is code for something very significant just happened. <laughs> and what happened was the wheel of Dharma was set in motion. When did that happen? When somebody understood. Yeah, when Kandanya got it. And it's, I find it really intriguing. When the Buddha was awakened, the wheel of Dharma was not set in motion. Mm -hmm. 
only when Kondanya got it. Then it started to move. In other words, the wheel of Dharma moves when the understanding spreads. Then things are starting to happen. Um, then this realization, this awakening will not die with the Buddha. It will continue. And of course the wheel of Dharma has been turning ever since and it continues to turn. Then the Blessed One cried out in inspiration, Kondanya understands, Kondanya understands. This is how Venerable Kondanya acquired the name Anya Kondanya, Kondanya who understands. You don't get it in English, but what the Buddha said was Anyasi Kondanyo, Anyasi Kondanyo. So, Anya Kondanya, Anyasi, he understands, he understands. Um, and I find, again, this very intriguing. I cannot think of any other... Well, later on, like the Buddha's just given everything he's got. And as a result, one out of five has got the first glimpse, the first glimpse of, the, of Nibbana, of the unconstructed. Later on in his career, he gets on stage, gives a Dharma talk, 500 people attain full awakening. You know. He just got better. He just got better. He did. <laughs> he, this is his practice run. But this is the only time where he dances a jig for joy because someone got it. He's up there dancing. Un- Kondanya understands. Kondanya understands. Yo, yo. <laughs> Abandoning all enlightened dignity. <laughs> but he never does it again. Does it, does it, does it instruct the side what he actually did? You just said side, you Quietly sitting around, or did he have to get up and? Well, these are the different schools of of interpretation. The traditional school will say he was sitting there with a little smile on his face. Kadoni understands. Kadoni understands. He yelled it to the world. Yeah, he cried out in inspiration. This is Udana. Like he just let the world know. So he was he was happy, and he wasn't he was going for it. Um, he did a lot of other Udhanas though, didn't he? Because yeah. they weren't about understanding About all sorts of things. That spontaneous poetry that was composed on the spot and presumably sung. Um, not kind of very mindfully mumbled, <laughs> but sung out in great joy. Joyously. Yeah. Um, so the Buddha is absolutely delighted. He he knows he can communicate this. Now he is a teacher. He's not just claiming to be one. He actually is a teacher. Now there is something happening. Now now there can be a Buddhism. Now it's possible that it can that things can start moving. Um, and this is where we'll leave it tonight. And tomorrow we'll start on the. Second discourse. Yeah. If it's set in motion and nothing can stop it, why is Maha Kasapa in a mountain waiting until after it's stopped for it to start again? It just runs out of steam. No one can stop it. But somewhere in the future. But it's like anything else, it had a beginning, didn't it? 
and whatever has the beginning has an, has an end. So it'll stop. It's just the nature of things. But then it can start again, given conditions. Did the Buddha say anything about Pachika Buddhas at all, explaining I mean, what, how, any sort of data on how many Pachika Buddhas there might have been? No, there's, in the early stuff there's very little mention of previous Buddhas or I can't think of mention of Pacheka Buddhas, but it might be there. If it's in the Tribitika, my guess is it'd be in Kutika Nikaya, it'd be in the later stuff. But they, you know, Buddhas who realised but weren't able to teach, mm. is, it, is, it, I is can't, it a real phenomenon or not necessarily? I can't think of having read it. I've seen it mainly in the Jatakas. Yeah, Jatakas, the, the stories, the prose stories. Mm. And they come later, they come a lot later. No. Not sure whether it's part of the early tradition. Although it's, it's built into the logic of it, mm. isn't it? I mean, the Buddha, it, had the Buddha not succeeded with those five, then presumably he would have thought, oh, bugger it, gone back to his Bodhi tree and been a Pacheka Buddha. I've never realised or thought about what a close shave it was. I mean, I thought about it, good thing the day was persuaded him to teach, but I've never thought about the next close shave. Yeah, I think it sounds to me like a whole series of pretty close shaves. But the conditions came together and suddenly, bam, there it is. And that's the way things work. When the conditions come together, suddenly something works. How soon after the day all becoming fully enlightened? That's for tomorrow night. Oh. <laughs> Stay tuned for the next exciting episode. <laughs> is a glimpse, like you're saying, is that stream entry? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, uh, can people still um, experience Nibbana hearing a Dharma talk? Oh, I presume so, but I haven't heard of it. <laughs> what did you say? Can people still experience Nibbana hearing a Dharma talk? <laughs> I mean, for the first time. For the first time, yeah. I mean, technically it's possible. I suspect all the, the folks who had the past life karma of practice that would have predisposed them to be able to do so may have already encountered the Dharma and thought, no, maybe, or maybe they just don't tell us about it. And it happens all the time, and nobody hears about it. Could be. They talk about transmission too, and various, not so much in Theravadan teachings, but in the Mahayana teachings and the Vajrayana teachings, they talk about transmission. Yeah. Do you think that that's like a transmission of, you know, I'm giving you my Nirvana, or I'm awakening you? It's almost <laughs> like a talk, it's not quite a talk. Well, it's the, when the Buddha gives a talk and lots of people get enlightened, it's, it's quite reminiscent of those later um, transmission-oriented shamanic traditions. It doesn't, it doesn't remind you of Theravada. It reminds you of more like the yeah. Tibetans and the Zenis. It's got more, more of that flavour to it. Patrick, you were saying um, talking about Dukkha as this sort of painful emptiness. Mm. Do you think that that is our intuitive understanding that the self isn't really real? 
Yeah, I think so. I think fundamentally we all know that we're not real. Mm-hmm. But we know that we're not real. Oh. Mm. But we cover that up mm. with all our desperate projects mm. to be recognised and to recognise ourselves as real. I think a lot of human endeavour is is based on this deep but deeply suppressed mm-hmm. intuition. Mm-hmm. And unknown thousands in therapy trying to <laughs> to find out if if trying to be uh, convinced that they are real. <laughs> Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear that. He's, he's known th- thousands in therapy de- trying to uh, trying to be convinced that they trying to have someone convince them that they are real. Yeah, that's the, that's the way of therapy is the way of self, basically. Self-reputation. Getting a healthy self, mm. presumably. Patrick, did you? Um, uh, I know that um, uh, student Bachelor he talks about the four truths as being sequential, and I've found that uh, whole discussion quite illuminating, quite helpful, mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of gives meaning to having Booker. Like um, it's almost like it's sequential in that you need to realise Booker first. And that leads to the realization of uh, the, the cause of dukkha, which leads to the realization of the cessation of dukkha, which leads to the realization of how to live that life of cessation. So mm-hmm. it's, quite, it's quite useful, I think. I think, uh, like, I mean, this is a list. And like other lists, it can be read in different ways. It can be read in a linear form and it can be read in a non-linear form. Yeah. I think it's deliberately... I think it's meant to be like that. That there's different ways of reading it. These these lists are really sophisticated. I don't think I, that would be just simply one correct way to read it. But so, so yeah, if you point out a, a different way of reading it, it gives you a different, a fresh viewpoint, which is very useful. I was reminded by a conversation I had decades ago when I was in Hawaii about um, talking to a, a fellow Zen student about another Zen student who had been practicing for a number of years, I forget how many, but not inconsiderable, who suddenly dropped out and the, everybody was wondering why. And my friend said, well, he obviously got what he came for. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And it's the people who don't drop out are the people in a sense whose desire always outmatches, always goes beyond what they've attained and the Buddha talks about this he says don't be satisfied with what you've attained there's always something more mm-hmm. so that the, the drivenness is part of nature so I think yes it's, you're right, it's part of, the, part of the whole path but it's a question of I think of using it skillfully mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quality of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
because the quality of it is refined when you practice mm-hmm. but yeah, right. the, but there is a there is a quality of you know a sense of I have to do this mm-hmm. but I don't have a choice in one sense I do but in a deeper sense I don't Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.